Well, hey there, Purpose Church. It has been an amazing week for the students of Purpose Church. We've been up at Forest Home experiencing summer camp together. We took over 175 students and leaders. And by the end of the week, we had over 20 students decide to take their next step to get baptized. And it was an absolutely incredible experience. But I'm so excited today to be continuing our study, our sermon series through the book of Revelation. Now, it it was a couple weeks ago, it was 12 o'clock, and I had a meeting that was beginning at 12.30 and was going to go for a couple of hours. And so I needed to get some lunch. And so I thought to myself, I got 30 minutes, that's more than enough time to leave the church office, head to El Pollo Loco, get my chicken tostada salad, make it back, eat it before the meeting. So I leave the church parking lot, I pull into El Pollo Loco, and there's a pretty big line in the drive-thru. But I'm an optimist, so I'm thinking there's no problem here. We're going to be able to get through this. As I'm as we're inching our way closer to the teller to be able to order my food, I, I, I'm kind of buying time by scrolling on Instagram, checking some emails. And by the time I get up to order my food, there's about seven cars behind me and seven cars in front of me. And right as I'm about to order, the woman taking my order, she says, sir, I need to let you know we are only accepting cash. And all I had was credit cards on me. And so I begin to panic. I begin to get a little frustrated. And I go, what, you you, you only take cash? Is there, I have a credit card. Is there any other way to pay? Can I Venmo? And she said, no, we only take cash. And I know, hold on, let me just talk to those of you that are Dave Ramsey fans. I get it. You're going, this is why we do cash only. Yeah, you're right. We absolutely get it. But here I am with only having a credit card. Can't pay. Seven cars behind me. Seven cars in front of me. There's no exit strategy. And because I'm hungry, I wasn't my best self. And so I said to the woman, I said, could you have told us this before we got in line? I can't get food now. I got this meeting. It would have been nice to know that it was cash only. And then she so kindly says on the other end, "Um, sir, there was a giant sign leading up to the drive-thru that said cash only. And I just felt like an absolute idiot stuck in between these cars. And then all of a sudden my rescuer came. All of a sudden hope showed up in the person of Pastor Greg Sfalstead. Yes, he pulled into the parking lot. He got out of his car to walk in and I said, Greg, Greg, I'm stuck here. I need lunch. Can you help a brother out? And he said, I got cash. I got you. You see, at this moment in the book of Revelation, things are tough things are frustrating. Maybe you're feeling like, man, I'm jam-packed as we're in the middle of Revelation in chapter 10 and 11. We're jam-packed between a lot of content and I'm feeling a little frustrated and it's a little hard to understand what's going on. In fact, one scholar that I was reading preparing for this message said that Revelation chapter 10 and 11 is some of the two most difficult chapters to interpret and to understand in the entire world book. But friends, I am so excited because I believe in chapters 10 and 11, God had a very unique message for the first century church. And I think he also has a very specific message for our church, the 21st century church, here and now. And we're going to discover three witnesses that are going to testify to three very significant, important things that you and I need to know. It reminds me of the the Marvin Gaye song, Can I Get 
a witness. Or maybe you remember Kirk Franklin's rap, Can I Get a Witness? Well, John, the apostle who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of Revelation, he's, he doesn't just have one witness for us. He's got three witnesses for us and each have a testimony that you and I need to hear. And so our first witness is this. The mighty angel testifies, hold firmly to God's word. Find me in Revelation chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 5, and they go like this. Then I saw another mighty angel, hold that mighty there, coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. Did you know that the book of Revelation mentions angels over 60 times? And I don't know what pictures come to mind when you think of an angel, but sometimes the pictures that, that we've been told and have been described are actually different than what's painted in the scriptures. There's this, uh, this film studio out of Denmark called Spectrum Cinema, and they took it upon themselves to, to create biblically accurate animations of what angels actually look like according to scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to read some of those descriptions from scripture about what angels look like. And I want you to watch this video that they made. It's absolutely incredible, maybe even a little terrifying. So let's watch this video as I describe angels from the Bible. In Isaiah chapter six, angels have six wings they can fly and they worship God loudly. In Ezekiel 1 and 10, some angels are human in form and some are shaped like a wheel intersecting with other wheels. They have four faces like a human, lion, ox, and eagle, each with four wings, human hands, and they move like flashes of lightning. They have loud voices and are covered in eyes. In Daniel chapter 10, angels have a face like lightning, eyes like flaming torches, and voices like a multitude. And in Revelation chapter 4, angels or living creatures are covered in eyes. They look like a lion, ox, a man, and an eagle. They have six wings. They are covered in eyes under their wings, and they praise God constantly. Wow, did you check out that video? What? Those are some incredible pictures, animations of what angels actually look like. Now, it's interesting because angels show up other places in the Bible as well. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Or towards the end of the book, in chapter 13, it says this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. In other words, Scripture says angels help us, they minister to us, they help us, and we might even be entertaining them without knowing it. 
I remember a number of years ago, I was flying home from Spokane, Washington with a layover in Seattle and then to LAX. And on the flight from Spokane, Washington to Seattle, I got to know this guy who sat right next to me named Abe. And Abe shared his story with me. In fact, he shared, I'm not a follower of Jesus anymore. I used to be, but I've lost my faith. And I remember as I was talking with Abe, I was praying, God, would you, I, I wish that I had something to give him. I wish I had something to help him reconnect or restore his relationship with you, Jesus. Well, we landed in Seattle and, and me and Abe and my friend Josiah, who was with me, we all decided to eat dinner together before taking our flight to LAX. So we're in the Seattle airport in the food court and we're sitting down and we're eating food and about halfway through our meal, a man walks up behind me dressed in all black and he taps me on the shoulder. And I turn around, I've never seen him before, but he's looking at me straight in the eyes. And he hands me something wrapped and he says, God told me to give this to you. I thought, this is crazy. I've never had something like this happen before. And so I'm stunned and I start to open it up and it's a book. It's a very specific book that I had given to multiple people that year who were disconnected, who had abandoned their faith in Christ as a way of hoping to help them sort of reconnect with Jesus. And and all of a sudden it started to click that this book wasn't for me, but it was for Abe. And by the time all that made sense in my head, I looked behind me and the guy was gone. I later gave that book to Abe and I said, Abe, I don't think it's an accident that you and I sat next to each other. And I don't think it's an accident that this book came into my hands by whoever that dude was. Jesus wants you to know he loves you. And I think this book is for you. Now, was that guy who tapped me on the shoulder an angel? I don't know. Was he just a guy who the Holy Spirit spoke to and told him to get this book for me? Possibly. But all I know is scripture points out to the fact that we might be entertaining angels without even knowing them. But here's what's interesting about the angel that's described in Revelation chapter 10, verses 1. It, it, it's, it's, he's referred to as the mighty angel. Now, 50% of biblical scholars, they believe that, that this mighty angel is a high-ranking angelic being. But the other 50% of scholars, they actually believe that, that this mighty angel is Jesus himself. And one of the reasons they believe that is because this mighty angel is holding the scroll that was said to have only been able to be held and opened by Jesus himself in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. In addition, uh, in in the ancient world, many people believe that the the earth's foundations were being held up by giant pillars. And this, this angel is described as having mighty pillars, fiery pillars for legs. But we know those of us who have studied the Old Testament and certainly those who were receiving this letter would have remembered Exodus chapter 13 where it's described that that God led Israel by fiery pillars at night. Many believe the scroll that this mighty angel is holding to, to be either the entire word of God or more specifically revelation. But maybe you're wondering, well, why, why would this mighty angel be called an angel and not just Jesus? Well, there's actually Old Testament precedent for an angel of the Lord descri- being, being described as an angel of the Lord who's actually God. And in fact, we see this in Exodus chapter 3 when, when an angel of the Lord shows up in the burning bush to Moses. And then it says that God speaks to Moses. And so there's many Old Testament examples of the angel of the Lord actually being God himself. 
But check out what what happens next in this story in verse 6. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. So here this mighty angel is letting us know that there has been a delay, but the delay is coming to an end. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about God delaying judging the world, delaying coming again, to which we should ask the question, why is Jesus delaying coming again? It's out of his profound love for you and I and our neighbors and our family and our friends and the entire world. In fact, we see the patience of God showing up to communicate that he has an immense love for you and I in in, in Peter's second letter. Remember, Peter was was one of the disciples who walked with Jesus, who, who denied knowing him. And then once he saw Jesus rise from the dead, he was willing to give up his life for him. And Peter wrote this letter, this second letter to the church. And in chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, he writes, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient, or instead he has chosen to delay his coming, not wanting anyone to perish. This is the heart of God for you, the heart of God for me, the heart of God for everyone on planet earth. His desire is that not one single person would perish, and that is why he has delayed. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord, what's being described here in Revelation, will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 10 verse 7. It continues, and he swore, or, but, in, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And I just wanted to pause here for a second, because this scripture, along with many others, tells you and I that there are mysteries that God has that you and I don't know. And some of us may be frustrated about that. We may go, man, I wish I could just fully understand. But we got to remember, God is infinite and we are finite. And honestly, can we just have a little fun for a second? Can you imagine if God told you absolutely everything that is going to happen? Like, can I just be honest with you? If God told me, hey, tomorrow you're going to get a paper cut, I wouldn't get out of bed. Like, I'd be laid up in bed. I'd be so terrified, right? Or or what if God told you every embarrassing thing you were going to do, every embarrassing moment you were going to have until the end of your life, it would be crippling to us. And God knows that we just can't handle all the things that are going to happen. And so he reveals to us as we need to know. Let's continue in verses 8 through 11. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. 
He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. What in the world is going on here? John has been instructed to eat and speak the little scroll. But this isn't the first time this kind of incident or event is happening in Scripture. In fact, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, a very similar thing happens. It says, And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. He then said to me, son of man, go now to the people of Israel and speak my words to them. This scroll is God's word. And what we're instructed here by, what we're, what we're taught, what becomes clear in this text is that God's truth is a mixture of sweet and sour. And, and, and you'll find people sometimes who want to spend all their energy and attention talking about the sweet aspects of God's word. They, they want to talk about the compassion and the love and the grace of God, which that abounds in Scripture. And then you'll meet people who have like this kind of weird obsession with God's judgment or, or wrath or conviction. And the reality is both of those are in scripture and God knows that you and I, we need a healthy theological diet of sweet and sour. It's like for my son, Charlie, he, he was about to eat a broccoli the other day and he just hates broccoli. And so he's trying to figure out how he's going to eat this broccoli. And then he comes up with this brilliant idea. He said, he said, mom, can I, uh, can I, can I wrap my broccoli in Dorito chips, right? <laughs> he wants to wrap it up in Dorito chips. You see, for us, for us, God's word is like that broccoli that sometimes we want to wrap it with other things or we want to take out the nutrients from it. We want to only eat parts of it. But God intends that you and I would understand and would be blessed by his entire word. And that's what Purpose Church is all about. That we're a community that believes we need both, that God knows that we need both. Let me give you two examples of this. Let's look at a sweet passage of scripture. In Isaiah chapter 103, just in verses 1 to 12, we're going to see there's 20 benefits, 20 sweet things about following God and the gifts that he gives us, the benefits of following him. Let's, let's read these together. Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his 
deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Ooh, amen. God's word is sweet and it's good. But God knows that we also need the sour parts of scripture, the parts that are challenging for us. Let's just look at Psalm 38, where we're gonna see that sin, while God offers 20 benefits in Psalm 103, our sin offers us 14 consequences Psalm 38, one to six, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down on me because of your wrath. There is no health in my body. There is no soundness in my bones because of my sin. My guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. See, friends, you and I live in a world that is screaming right now. Screaming. You see it on social media. You see it in, at the dinner table. You see it as people interact with each other on our news channels, even in, in workspaces or hobbies. The world is screaming around us, and the reality is that's not going to change. But what is going to change is the people of God, instead of joining the screaming world, we need to hold firmly to God's word. We, we need to have, have ears and eyes and hearts that are attuned to God's message. I mean, look what, look what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He said, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You were designed to shine. You were made to shine. You were made and designed by God to have significance and purpose and to be influential. How does that come about? As you hold firmly to the word of life. Friends, the mighty angel testifies, hold firmly to God's word. Up next, we'll, we'll discover the two witnesses. And the two witnesses testify, live faithfully. Let's look at Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it. Because it has been given to the Gentiles, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. 
And let me give you a little overview of chapter 11. We discover these two witnesses. And these two witnesses, they have the power to prophesy, to perform miracles. And as we're going to see in a few minutes, they will be martyred and then they will actually be resurrected from the dead. Now, there's a lot of conversation around the 1,260 days. What is John referring to? And I want to show you the four different interpretations of that. But before we do that, let me recap for us the four views of how people oftentimes interpret the book of Revelation. And as Glenn and I have been working through this series, we've wanted to help simplify and make it even easier to remember these four different views. So the four views of the book of, Re- of Revelation. The first is the historicist approach. And really, this could just be summarized as the whole church. So historicists would say that Revelation 1 all the way to chapter 22 surveys the whole of church history. The preterist approach, they believe that the book of Revelation really is focused on what happened in the early church in that first and second century. The futurist approach says, no, 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 the book of Revelation is actually about the future church that has yet to come. And then the symbolic approach says, actually the book of Revelation is just recycling over and over again what every church throughout the ages experiences. So taking these different approaches, let's look at the 1,260 days. The historicists interpret the 1,260 days as 1,260 years during the reign of the popes in Rome before the Reformation. Let's go to the next one. Preterists interpret the 1,260 days as the period of the Jewish war, Nero's persecution, or possibly both. Futurists interpret the 1,260 days as a literal 3.5 years at the end of the tribulation, which is described in Revelation chapters 4 through 19. And symbolic interpreters understand the 1,260 days as referring to the entire church age from the moment Jesus ascended until he returns again. Now, who are these two witnesses? Well, it seems like they're similar to the ones that are described in Zechariah chapter 4. Some people believe that they're Elijah and Enoch, who are two guys from the Old Testament who were uh, brought up into heaven. Some people think that they're past or future leaders in the church. Others would say, well, they're described as lampstands, which was exactly how the seven churches were described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. But let's watch what happens to these two witnesses next, verses 7 to 11. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and and terror struck those who saw them. 
These two witnesses go through a season of being effective in ministry. They're killed and then they're actually resurrected. And, and their experience very much mirrors Jesus's experience. Jesus was doing ministry for about three years. He was martyred, he was murdered. And then three days later, he rose from the grave, which is a very similar experience that these two witnesses are having here. But I actually think that there's maybe a, a deeper spiritual principle or reality that we see in the lives of these witnesses that is true for you and it's true for me if you're a follower of Christ. And it's the spiritual life cycle of Christians. You see, every single follower of Christ goes through these three seasons. First is a season of spiritual effectiveness. Second is a season of spiritual struggle. And third is a season of spiritual renewal. And I just want to take a minute to ask you the question, which of these seasons are you in right now? Sometimes it can be helpful to identify, man, I'm in a season of spiritual struggle. You won't always be there. And what's coming next is spiritual renewal that's going to lead towards spiritual effectiveness. Maybe this is a great conversation to have with your life group or your family or your friends. Which spiritual life cycle season are we in right now? Now, in, in verse 7, we, we discovered the beast, who's later going to be described in Revelation chapter 13, which we're going to talk a lot about next Sunday. But it's clear that this beast and those who work with him, they begin to win battles. But, but do not grow weary because Jesus ultimately wins the war, that ultimately Jesus wins and the new heavens and the new earth burst forth. But what is clear is that Christians will face persecution, that Christians will be mocked, they'll be rejected, and they'll even be murdered. And, and Jesus told us this was going to happen. In, in John chapter 15, verse 20, in Jesus' own words, he says, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. See, the question is not, will we be persecuted as followers of Christ? No, the question is this, how will you respond? How will I respond? How will we respond when we're in a culture that disagrees with us, that doesn't believe the same things we believe, that even mocks or rejects us? How will we respond and I found this quote that I read a number of weeks ago by, by a pastor named Rich Velotas to be very convicting, and I haven't been able to get it off my mind. He said this, It really is a curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you are trying to bring to Jesus. Let me just say, sometimes, and maybe this doesn't apply to all of us, but I, sometimes I see Christians choosing to respond to their culture or to people who disagree with them, believe differently than them, hold different lifestyles than they hold, I see them sometimes responding by despising them or even making fun of them. And when I read this quote, I'm reminded, wait, hold on. Those people that we're despising, those people that maybe in private quarters we're making fun of or, or, or trying to, to mock in some way, aren't those the people that Jesus died for? Aren't those the people that Christ has called you and I to reach? Are, 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 we, are we misusing the life that God has given us by abandoning our call to reach the people far from 
God. Do you remember the woman caught in adultery? You remember how Jesus said, I don't condemn you, go and sin no more. You remember the story of that centurion, that Roman official who who had a sick servant. Do you remember how Jesus commended him for great faith? You remember the Samaritan leper who, who Jesus healed and then praised him for coming back and expressing gratitude? Or do you remember the chief tax collector who Jesus said, I must eat dinner with you. Make no mistake about it, friends. Each one of these people and so many others that encountered Jesus, they held different worldviews than Jesus. They had different beliefs than Jesus. Their lifestyles were not congruent with the kingdom of God. And yet Jesus shows up full of grace and truth, prioritizing relationship. And when he does that, the atmosphere is transformed. The human heart is transformed. Things change people get saved and they come into alignment with God's desire and his kingdom and the world becomes more like Christ desires for it to be. But if Jesus had simply looked at all of them and said, you are different than what I'm communicating, you don't agree with all the things I do, I'm gonna despise you or mock you, he would have missed out on exactly what his purpose was. And friends, the same is true for you and I. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, he coaches us through this. He, he helps prepare us for persecution. L- look at what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we mock. When we are cursed, we despise. When we are cursed, we, we, we back talk about them. We gossip about them. No, Paul says you are going to be cursed. If you're following Jesus, the culture is not fully going to understand why you're doing that. They're going to make fun of that. They're going to reject you. They're going to mock you. It's coming. You will be cursed. Please don't respond the way the world does. But take these words to heart. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. This is crazy talk right here. So Paul, you're telling me that when somebody curses me and when somebody slanders me, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to pray and ask God to help me bless them and speak kindly to them? And Paul responds, absolutely. In fact, he continues, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Now hold it there, hold it there, hold it there. Let's go back. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me, to which all of us should be asking, Paul, why in the world would we want to imitate you? Why in the world when somebody curses us or slanders us, would we choose to bless them and speak kindly to them? Why would we do that? Verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. If you want people to see the power of God through your life, not just your opinions, your opinions are not going to change anybody's lives. 
What is going to change someone's life is seeing the power of God lived through you. If you want them to see the power of God in your life, it comes about when you respond to being cursed and slandered with blessing and with kindness. And then our third witness, our third witness is actually all of heaven. Heaven testifies, your king is coming. Let's wrap it up here. 11, Revelation chapter 11, verses 15 to 18. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven, which said the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. And he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. All of heaven announces the kingdom of God, which was a spiritual reality, always breaking through the physical reality, has become fully actualized. And at this moment, the 24 elders fall face down in the presence of God, and they utter three promises for everyone who's hurting, for everyone who's confused, for everyone who's going through a hard time, and it's this. One day, Jesus will reign completely. One day the world will be judged accordingly and one day Christians will be rewarded generously. Joseph Charles Price was born in 1854 as a free black man. His father was enslaved, but his mother was free. He grew up and, and in his younger years, he began teaching for four years in a public school. He went to college in North Carolina and then continued his education in Oxford. He graduated and later became the founder and first president of the historically black college, Livingstone College in Salisbury, North Carolina. Joseph Price was known for his powerful preaching and his great leadership skills. He tragically died at the age of 39 from kidney disease. It was Joseph Price who greatly influenced Booker T. Washington and many have called Price one of the greatest preachers and leaders of the 19th century. And Joseph Charles Price once said, no matter how dark the night, I believe in the coming of the dawn. No matter how dark the night, I believe in the coming of the dawn. No matter how dark and hopeless things may seem, your king, our King, King Jesus is coming. And so may you and I hold firmly to God's word. May you and I live faithfully. And may you and I never, ever, ever forget what all of heaven is testifying to. King Jesus is coming.